This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. On this week's show, we're going to be recapping the action from the Portimao Grand Prix. Steve English, Adam Wheeler and Neil Morrison on the show today. And uh, Adam, this was another weekend where MotoGP just kept delivering. More, Even though we had a double winner, uh, Fabio Quasarara now uh, two out of three. Uh, you know, he doubled up for the first time since 2020 when he shone at the beginning of that season in Areth. Uh There was still some some kind of key crashes and moments, some good talking points coming up um, and a few alarm bells uh, going off, as well as some uh, very emotional uh, scenes, particularly in the HRC camp. Yeah, and uh, Neil, it was obviously very emotional for you as well. There was one day where the delivery was a little bit late for your food. Exactly. Yeah, the Portuguese uh, Glovo man wasn't quite uh, as rapid as my Barcelona one. Uh, but thankfully, that was only one night, as you said, Steve. So uh, everything was under control. Um, but yeah, another just, you know, uh, echoing what Adam said, I think um, um, the last time that we saw back to back winners um, was indeed Fabio um, last uh, last July um, and there was a run of 14 races where we didn't have back-to-back winners uh, I think that's the longest sequence since 2002-2003 um, so yeah this felt like a little bit of um, finally someone putting their stamp on the series um, because it had been so up and down um, for so long and I think you know Fabio is showing us that he is possibly becoming the rider that we all thought he could be back in 2019. Yeah, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens now when we go to the next round. Obviously, that's in Hareth where he did the double last year, probably should have won in 2019 as well. So it's going to be tough for everyone now to try and get that little bit of a foothold into it. And I think that's what's going to be quite interesting now because we saw Mark Marquez come back this weekend. We saw him get out on track. We saw what he looks like. We saw how much it meant to him, Ad. You were talking about that as well at the end of the day. But this was a weekend where... There was all the question marks about Mark, and then suddenly we've started to get some answers. He started the weekend really strong, but as the weekend went on, it just got a little bit tougher for him all the way through. But to come away with a a top seven finish in this race after not sitting on a MotoGP bike for nine months, never having ridden a race bike in Portimao, ah, this was really impressive. Can, can we just backtrack a little bit and, you know, just revisit who said he was going to be on the podium or challenging for victory and last week's show? I think I mentioned he might be near the top 10 or just in the points. So I think I, I won that particular one. I said he was going to be to in think- the top six. Ed. So, you know, one place off, one place off. I said, <laughs> I said he's Mark Marquez, lads, and I'm not ruling anything out. And I'll be honest, whenever I saw him in free practice one, I was feeling a little bit smug. But that smugness went away pretty fast over the weekend. I mean, P3 in that first session was pretty outstanding. I know it's mixed conditions and, you know, Mark has shown himself to be a bit of a master in adapting very quickly to, you know, uh, what he's facing on the motorcycle. But you, you'd have to say that that first outing, uh, you know, that was when he was freshest. Um, you know, there was probably that uh, initial glee of getting back on the race bike and being back in the pit box uh, probably helped to, to help him, well, help Mark push towards and make that lap time. Um, but, you know, all things considered getting through a 25-lap Grand Prix, 20 of those laps, you know, in pretty good form. Uh, it was it was pretty staggering. Yeah, 273 days, I think it was, since Mark's last MotoGP race. Um, and yeah, what you said Ed, was, was impressive. And what really impressed me about it was any conversation I'd had about Mark's comeback prior to Portugal um, basically centered around general theme of like, okay, 
yes, he has to be careful. But what if he finds himself in a battle with Joanne Mir or Pekka Banyaya or Franco Morbidelli or one of these new names coming through? Will he be able to control himself? And, um, you know, control himself is pretty much what he did. Um, he was actually just really mature about it and didn't, apart from the first few laps where he said he found himself a little bit out of place among the leading guys, uh, he then got shuffled back and he had to take a bit of a deep breath. Um, he was remarkably controlled um, and he was just doing the mature thing of making sure he could get the maximum amount of points possible and not getting mixed up in any sort of silly uh, running feuds in the race. Um, so I think it was a, a really, really mature performance, obviously incredibly gutsy as well. Um, and, you know, hats off to him because seventh place, 13 seconds off Fabio at what Fabio said was the most physical track on the calendar. Um, yeah, I know it's another pretty impressive achievement from Mark. There were some, still some Marquez hallmarks across the weekend. I mean, you know, the front and rear, uh, rear slides in on Saturday, uh, you know, during, I think it was FP4. Uh, you know, it was it was pretty impressive stuff again using that word. But also in the race, you know, he had a little bit of a run in with Joan Mir. Um, you know, was that rustiness or was that Mark just being Mark uh, in terms of you know asserting a bit of you know his position on the racetrack? Um, I, I I going into the Grand Prix, we had talked about him last week, and I said there were two questions for me. One, would he be able to last the distance? And I think that was kind of answered a little bit by you know his his uh his withering stamina towards the end particularly with his right arm and the second one is uh what would happen when he crashed uh especially on that side of his body or anything to do with that side of his torso uh we didn't get the answer to that one um you know luckily i mean the, the, the last thing you want to do is uh, wish an injury or a fall on him especially at portimao where we saw some really fast offs uh throughout the grand prix but, uh, you know, that's still one to handle. And considering it is Hareth next, you know, the scene of the uh, the disaster um, 12 months ago, it's, uh, you know, another factor that could bother Mark all of two laps. I'll probably say knowing him. Yeah, I was going to say, like, Hareth obviously has the bad memories of last year, but Mark's fantastic at Hareth as well. He's got a lot of race wins there, a lot of good memories at Hareth as well. So I'd, last week on the pod you were talking about how it would be really good if he you know if Hareth was the actual comeback because you know for a storyline it's good to have this that and the other but I think it's also really good that he's had this race weekend to give himself the chance to get up to speed and now he'll go to Hareth with his eye in he'll go to Hareth understanding the bike and you know you'd expect to see him make progress now round on round and the big thing with Mark is we know that once he gets to a certain level Neil that he's just going to be able to go out and win races on, on on a trot that's what what he's done his whole career yeah exactly um yeah i think he was he was basically trying to play down expectations all all weekend long um and even after the race he was sort of saying about how the doctors had advised him um to really try and control his training um if he was going to compete then he absolutely couldn't be doing any sort of riding away from the track um he could only do some uh, gym work which is basically cardio work no work with weights so he's basically having to give his upper body i think a complete rest between now and her rest um and he was saying that that's another thing that he has to factor in that okay, he's on the bike and in some cases he's looking like the old Mark, but he's not able to train with any kind of intensity. Um, and um, it might be, you know, quite a bit of time until he's able to do that. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's only natural that he's trying to play his hopes down. But if he's only uh, 13 seconds behind the winner in his comeback race, you have to think that by the end of May, 
maybe even sooner. He's going to be fighting for the podium, maybe even more. Yeah, and Adam, it's a bit like a footballer coming back from a knee injury. For every Ruud van Nistelrooy, there's a Michael Owen that loses their big advantage, loses their the one thing that they had that the other players didn't have. Mark looks like he's come back, immediately has the same sort of feel and speed that you'd expect from him. And now we have to wait and see what happens whenever he clicks on the next round and then when we go to Le Mans and just how he builds on that. But it's going to be interesting. I do wonder if you'll, I know it's the cliche is that they never look at it. And even Fabio was busting out this quote at the weekend saying he's going race by race and not looking at the standings. But at the mark, at the moment, Mark's inhabiting 14th place in the World Championship. Uh, he's got nine points and he's 52 down on Quartararo at the top. 52, that's more or less, you know, it's two Grand Prix. Uh, you know, it, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that he makes up that ground. Uh, like you say, I think, um, you know, Jerez as well as Le Mans and especially Catalonia, if he's if he's firing at 100% by the time we get to his home Grand Prix, then, you know, if I, if I was the others, I would be looking over my shoulder. But, um, I, I, you know, as I said at the beginning of the year, I still can't see him winning 14th, the, the World Championship. 14th place in the championship, you say, Adam? Yeah. Because... Three races into last year's MotoGP campaign, a certain Joanne Mayer was 14th in the championship. Spooky. Well, it's only spooky if we get to the end of the season and Mark wins, Neil. This is just a, <laughs> this is just a coincidence right now at this point. Well, the other, th the other thing is, you know, I think Mark missed the podium only once, uh, you know, in 2019. So Joanne uh, has got quite some way to go before he reaches that level of uh, results and performance. But it's a, it's a, good, a good stat, Neil. Well, let's get into the race weekend as well now, guys. What was your big talking point from the weekend? What was the one thing that you were really interested in after Portimao, Neil? Um, my, I think my big talking point or what I was most looking forward to seeing coming into Portimao, apart from Mark, uh, was the performance of the Yamahas. And yeah, I think the one of the takeaways has to be um, Fabio Cuadraro's sensational performance right the way through the race weekend um it wasn't just um i mean it was it was just fantastic i think it, it showed you know fabio's development as a rider um his uh, maturing as a rider as well um and i think it just showed that this year you know the yamaha is a pretty good package they definitely have made a step forward it wasn't just what we saw in qatar um and you know fabio as you mentioned earlier steve going into rest now um he's really got some wind in his sails and um you know is, is is riding really well so confident as well um so yeah i think that's got to be my big my big talking point yeah and i think for me fabio was fantastic from when we went green light in fp1 all the way through to the checkered flag the only problem was the celebration was a bit crap. But other than that, I thought it was a really positive weekend. Everything was exactly what you want from a factory rider. Ad, what about you? What was your your big thing from the weekend? First of all, Steve, I think he's got to, you know, uh, come up with his own celebrations. And then maybe like a footballer will copy him instead of like having to copy other sportsmen. You know, put your bar a bit higher, Fabio. There's no, no, no problem with that. Now, he's looking, uh, just going back to covering what Neil was saying, I mean, he's looking more mature, as you'd expect. I mean, he's, he's only in his early 20s, 21 still, I think. Um, I mean, that's still ridiculously young uh, to be aiming for the peak of your sport. So I think, you know, Yamaha have identified that. And 
already, even though 2020 was a pretty monumental collapse, you could say, in terms of his mentality and his approach to, you know, grinding out the results or dealing with the fact that he was one of the the protagonists in the class. Um, he seems to be having a little bit more regularity uh, and consistency, not just in terms of the results, but the way he's tackling a weekend compared to, say, Maverick Mignales. Um, you know, if I was Lynn Jarvis, I'd be looking at one side of the garage thinking that, you know, maybe I would expect this kind of approach to be the other way around. But uh, but no, it's uh, like I say, it's good that Jerez is next for Quateraro and then his home Grand Prix in Le Mans as well. Uh, he's fast at Barcelona. It's where he won his first Grand Prix in Moto2. So there's a there's a run of three tracks here where he could really like, you know, throw in some strong results and make a big statement for the championship. You, you you criticize the the celebration, Steve. But I mean, do you think it's uh, is this Fabio's main kind of year? Is this his time, or is it still a little bit early for him to to be you know throwing his hat in the ring? Now's the time. He has to do it. He's the factory rider. He's into this stage now where he's got enough experience. He's obviously been fast right from the start in a MotoGP bike, and now he needs to be able to be consistent as well. Last year won a lot of races. But from Catalonia onwards, it all went downhill very fast. He needs to show that he can do it week in, week out. The reason I kind of say that is because one of my, not well, not a big talking point, but observation from, from Portimao was a rider who I think we expected a lot of this year. And in our preview shows, we talked about what could he do, and that was Jack Miller. Um, you know, after the, the preseason tests and we all kind of make the same folly of thinking, well, if a guy, if a rider is shining brightly, you know, in the first test of the year, and let's not forget, we used to go to Sepang, we used to go to Phillip Island. There was, uh, you know, different tracks, different kind of challenges, um, in terms of setting up the motorcycles, which teased us all into thinking this rider's got it nailed this year. Uh, you know, if you had said after Qatar on those first five days that Jack Miller would come away with a ninth, a ninth and a DNF in the first three rounds, I think you'd think, well, you know, has somebody hit him on was one of those races or has he had a technical problem? Because it would be a pretty, pretty low key, wouldn't it? Um, so for him to, to slide out of the race there battling for a top five position, um, he spoke quite eloquently afterwards about um, how he feels, to use his quote, that he's in the trenches um, and, you know, they need to work their way out of this hole. Uh, his confidence has already taken a battering. Uh, to see his teammate on the podium picking up silverware, it's really a, a tough time for Jack. And let's not forget his arm pump operation. So it's um, it's a big couple of weeks for him, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point as well, Ad. Definitely for all of us. You know, yeah, you base it a little bit on the results of preseason, but you also based on what you see and what you hear and what the writer looks like. And Jack looks super relaxed. He was saying all the right things. But once you're in those trenches, suddenly it's not about having all saying the right things. It's about keeping the cool head and getting the most from the situation. We saw his teammate Paco Bagnaia do that an awful lot better in the opening three races of the year. Paco's been fast on a single lap. He's been fast in races. And for me, the big thing from this weekend involved Paco. It was the yellow flag incident in the qualifying session. You know That changed the whole complexion of the race weekend. And then you can also factor in Vinales into that account as well. It changed everything because suddenly someone like Paco, who had the pace all weekend, would have started from pole position, was taken out of that battle for the lead. And then, yeah, Fabio was fantastic. But I really wanted to see what it would have been like in a battle up against Paco. You you put it up there, the, the yellow flag incident. Is Freddie Spencer still on the FIM jury? Yes, he's the chief steward. I mean, you would think... You know, having a, an ex-racer of that experience and calibre, they would, uh, I know there's a letter of the law as such, but, 
you know, there has to be some sort of interpretation, especially when the TV onboard images clearly show Bagnaya, as every rider is doing, looking towards the left of that turn and the, the flag tower is on the right. Uh, you know, of course, in Portimao, we had the very first, um, you know, uh, emphatic use of electronic kind of yellow flags. Actually, was it in Bruno as well? I think they tried that in 2020. They had it in Le Mans. Um, yeah, because they're they're there for the endurance race and obviously with the 24-hour race. Um, and I think that was about two years ago. And then the riders were saying that they had been pushing Dorna uh, in the safety commission now for some time to introduce them just as a an alternative to the flag marshal, just to give them, you know, better visibility. Well, it goes to show that the system's still not, you know, nailed on perfect, is it? If, uh, you know, Bagnai couldn't see that yellow flag, it was denied his pole position lap, which was frankly pretty damn astonishing and then affected the race result. Well, the one thing about that as well is the, the rule is the rule and Peko did break the rule or, you know, the rule affected Peko in a certain way. Now, it doesn't matter about circumstances because the rule is very black and white. Now, do I think Peko was at fault? Personally, not because he couldn't possibly have seen the yellow flag. It was on, as you said, at the opposite side. He's leaned off. You know, we see that graphic that comes up all the time, 62, 63, 64 degrees a lean. They're going through one of the fastest corners on the on the calendar nearly. You know, it's tremendous. You come down that hill, the bike's geeing out. It's, you know, really difficult for the riders. And he's off the off the side of the bike. He can't see what's happening on the opposite side. So yeah, Paco, I don't think did anything wrong, but the rule was broken. So I can understand why Paco gets the penalty. For me, it was really unfortunate for Bagnaya because you know it, it's such circumstances just working so much against him. Just the absolute timing of it. But the thing is, though, even if Paco did see the yellow flag, and you know, um, and basically rolled out. I mean, his lap time would be cancelled anyway. That is the rule, you know. If if you're if a yellow flag is shown, no matter what you do, your your lap time is cancelled. So, um, you know, the fact that he didn't see it, you know, it's almost secondary because even if he did see it and he rolled out, well, obviously he wouldn't have been as fast on that lap. But um, yeah, the lap time would have been cancelled whether he saw it and kept going as fast as he did, um, or or if he didn't see it. So, um, yeah, that's that's one of the rules there and it's it's tough um it does make qualifying a real lottery um i mean joanne Mir was talking about he obviously came through q1 on saturday and he was talking about having to change his strategy completely because he only had one soft tire because he did q1 he only had one soft tire left for q2 and he said that they put it in at the start of the session just because there's that fear of the yellow flags being shown towards the end of the session someone gets a bit too excited crashes out then, you know, you've got no chance of setting the lap time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's the, it's there to increase safety, but um, at the same time, you're, we're still having instances where riders are going flat out through a pretty dangerous section of the track where a rider is kind of stricken maybe in the gravel trap or if not the rider, then the marshals are, are rescuing his bike. So it still hasn't quite addressed the, the glaring um, safety issue there, which is, you know, riders have to slow down when there's a yellow flag there. But it's uh, a case where I think it was Miguel Oliveira was talking about the narrow um, optimum working temperature of the tyres. So if the guys are only going to get two laps and two attempts, I mean, Oliveira himself crashed out in Q2, pushing for a second fast lap. I mean, that was all, that was all he knew he had on the rubber. Maybe a revision of the rule would be to you know, exercise um, some judgment after the fact. 
uh, if Peko Benaya is charging on his fastest lap and he knows he should uh, sl slow for a yellow flag, I mean, he clearly hasn't seen it if he's still going for it. Maybe the juries can review the video footage afterwards and say, look, you know, he, he could have seen the flag, but he, he decided to go for it anyway. Or he clearly hasn't. And I think, you know, the fact that Benaya is skirting the edge of disaster to to make that lap happen, like you say, Neil, is a, is a safety issue, as well as the fact that he could have slid off into the gravel, you know, a la uh, Tito Rabat, um, you know, in, in Silverstone a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, for me, it just, it just feels too regimented that there should be a little bit more leeway. Yeah, but that's also just where you're taking into account, you know, whether or not you give Peko a big fine for running through a yellow flag zone without slowing down, as opposed to, like Neil said, if there's a yellow flag in the sector, your lap's cancelled regardless. For me, it was just one of those things where this was just unfortunate that we ended up missing out on a rider or being able to battle at the front. Now, it brings to light quite a lot of other potential circumstances and different things that can factor into it. But, you know, I think that there's not really an awful lot that Peko can complain about because of how the rules are written. Do you think it should be, you know, would, would a super poll for MotoGP be better? I'm not a big fan. I'm not, like, not for the spectacle. No, I don't think so. Like, we look at qualifying and qualifying's fantastic. Like, it's all action. Um, super pole is really good in when you're looking back at super bikes from 20 years ago and you're looking back through rose-tinted glasses do you really want to sit there and watch a lap by you know whoever's going to finish 15th in a qualifying session and seeing oh yeah they were you know looking all right the the margins are so small in MotoGP now that you don't really know what's the big differences between those riders on any given lap as well so i think the spectacle would be would be really bad now maybe you want to do it where you get a, a run out for the top six positions or something but i don't know qualifying works quite well even when you look at formula one formula one goes to the three sessions as well and the most exciting minute of a formula one weekend is the last minute of q3 or q2 to see who's able to get get through i just think the two most dangerous parts of a grand prix weekend are that that kind of 10 minute gap where like, you know, they have two laps, that's it, to, to make the perfect lap. And also the first couple of laps of a race or the first lap of a race where everyone's bunched together. Um, you know, if you had, I mean, I agree with you completely, by the way, guys. I mean, as a spectacle, it's, just, it's, it's pretty gripping. But if you had a clear, each rider had a clear track to really bust it and go for it, then that surely that's uh, your safety issue solved in a moment. Yeah, but then do you, do you, do you want to see a safety car start out and a rolling start down to turn one as well? Yeah, true. Yeah, you know, like for me, it, it's it's those things where you're trying to balance it out. I'd quite like to see Mark Marquez on a quality tire and seeing what he's like. But I also quite like that in superbikes, we got rid of the superpole session to give the riders a Q tire, and it's up to them to decide when to use it. Maybe that's the solution for MotoGP. Maybe there is a Q tire for Michelin that you can either use at the start of a session or you can use it at the end. You can use it in the middle. You can do whatever you want, and maybe that's what kind of finds a, a balancing point but for me the spectacle is so good at the minute I, I can't imagine them looking to change it I'd love to see a, a five lap sprint I think Dave Emmett's idea of uh, that for Moto3 in particular is, is not not too bad hang on a second is, hang no, no, on no. a second no no you can't say that for safety reasons I'd like to see these kind of changes and then give them a five lap race to try and set the grid why not we're just spitballing here we're, you know to use a, an American colloquialism it's just uh we're, we're talking but in, in mxgp for example in, in motocross the world championship 
the qualification races on the Saturday are there to give entertainment factors to the fans that are already in the track and, of course, the TV broadcast. The riders don't particularly like it. Uh, some some do, due to the guys who are not the one-lap specialists. But, you know, it's another start. Uh, it's another element of risk with, like, 30 riders heading straight into the first turn. There's always an element of kind of peril there. So, you know, if in effect, um, a 20... Grand Prix season means 60 race starts for the MSGP guys. Um, and, you know, obviously in 2020 with the pandemic, that was scrapped in favor of qualification runs. Um, and I have to admit that the, the qualification race missing there did remove a bit of drama from, from the Grand Prix on the Saturday. So uh, I don't know. Bring it bring it in for Moto, G, Moto 3, see what happens. But it's also those things then where you're changing the fabric of what we've had for 70 years in, in the championships. And I think that's what can be quite dangerous. Like, you look at superbikes, right? We've got the Superpole race. Personally, I'm not a big fan of the Superpole race for a few reasons. The big one is that it's counting towards stats. It's a 10-lap race. It shouldn't count towards your overall race stats. I'd love to see it where it was basically we had a Superpole session that set the grid for a Superpole race that then set the grid for two races on a, on a Sunday. But, you know, that's because for me it would be the ideal solution to kind of mixes and matches between what you're talking about there with MXGP ad where you have a session that's going to dictate your your gate position for or your gate choice and then it's up to you to be able to then use that to give yourself the best gate choice for the actual Grand Prix as well but you know I think MotoGP we've always had this kind of setup and I, I think that if you start changing things just for Let's get a little bit more spectacle. I think that's where it can get a little bit NASCAR-y, where NASCAR has the race split up into, I think it's four sections to give out points. So on the end of lap 68, if you're in the first position, you get X amount of points, which you know, it's all too gimmicky. Well, that brings us really to a close about the qualifying session, what we saw during that. When we come back after the break, we'll talk about some of the other big talking points from the Portuguese Grand Prix. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. Before the break, we were talking about some of the big instances that we saw in the qualifying session. One of the other instances was Maverick Vinales running out wide, having a lap time cancelled, and it took away another competitor that could potentially have been right up there at the front as well, Neil. You picked Fabio Quattararo's performance as your standout, um, standout thing from the race weekend. But it was a race weekend where, you know, missing out on those couple of challengers, it really would have been great to have seen a big battle like that at the front. It would have been great, Steve, yeah. Although I'm not sure we can count Maverick Vinales as someone that would have fought with with Cuadraro, even if he had been at the start, because his, uh, I mean, his start was utterly shambolic. Um, it was really quite desperate. Yes, he was 12th, but it still doesn't excuse him from entering the first corner, I think, second last. Um, and he said in the race that he didn't have the pace. He said apart from Q2, um, he didn't really have any grip um, or feel truly comfortable on the bike at any point during the weekend. Um, so he wasn't pointing to Q2 as the moment that drastically changed it all. He said that, you know, the race, he just had that 
age-old problem of a, a puzzling lack of grip that he wasn't really able to, to un- explain. Uh, Banyaya definitely would have changed the um, the shape of the race, though, if he was starting on pole, because you could probably bet that he would have led for quite a, a substantial period. Um, um, and Oliveira, uh, you know, if circumstances were different, Oliveira clearly would have been in the run as well. Um but uh, yeah, I think Fabio still was just uh, was stronger than anyone. Uh, was stronger than everyone right the way through the weekend from FP2 on Friday, uh, right the way through to the race. Alex Rins gave it a real good go and went above and beyond his potential and his capabilities. And it told in the end. Um, but I just thought Fabio was so impressive how he managed that gap with Rins. And you could just see it. He was just lowering his, his lap time every single lap in a bid to try and break rinse. Um And he was thinking the whole time. He was saying that he wasn't getting stressed. He was enjoying being out front. Um, that he knew Rins didn't have this kind of pace or hadn't shown this kind of pace previously. So he thought, if I can just keep lowering my lap time, I'm either going to break him or he's going to make a mistake. And he said he saw his, his basically his, uh, his gap was at 0.2, 0.3. And he's thinking, Flip, this is, he's hanging on in there. Fair play. But, Eventually, Rince did make that mistake. And um, yeah, I just thought it was a, a really well-managed uh, race by Fabio. Um, and, you know, he, he is operating on a, a completely different level this year, I think. Yeah, I thought that this race was the best we've seen from Fabio in a lot of ways, just because he controlled it so well. Like you said there, Neil, he looked at a pit board that was constantly telling them a gap of two tenths. When you're at lap record pace and you're still seeing that you're not breaking away from the other guy, that's tough for a rider to deal with. And Fabio kept a cool head all the way through it. And in fairness, keeping a cool head hasn't always been his forte. It's clearly always been a little bit of a weakness for Vinales. You know, like it... It surprised me to look at the other side of the pit box and see someone that was, I think Vinales was third or fourth fastest in FP4. And, you know, then you hear him on Sunday talk about how much of a disaster the whole weekend was. You know, up until that point, I think you would have been shocked if you had said that Vinales was going to be running, you know, the same pace as the likes of Bestianini in the second half of of, of this race. And, and he, he was just, it just looked like another one of those cases where, you know, the penalty in qualifying just snowballed all the way for him whereas for Quattararo he just built momentum all the way through the weekend yeah for Vinales Steve I think it's a case of he was clearly rattled by that incident I think it you know sent a few shockwaves through the pit box and it looked like it was still kind of reverberating you know come Sunday um for Quattararo I think you know still uh, Steve um big pardon Neil made it like a very sort of uh excellently detailed case for him um i do i still want to see you know we've seen him as a race winner we've seen him as an exciting rookie uh we've seen him as a pace setter but now i think we need to see if he's uh, got championship material uh, in him you know and that will come up in the next couple of races because now he's at the top again uh he had you know his countrymen there i mean yohan sarko i think uh you know his kind of full-on face at trackside uh, when he had been uh, you know, the Pramac Ducati, I think was into turn 14. No, uh, you know, that, that kind of expression was pretty, uh, you know, it said it all really. I mean, I think he knew he'd wasted a good opportunity and, uh, now it's, uh, Fabio's turn again to, to lean everybody. Yeah. It was another one of those races where you looked at it and you saw that, you know, it just kind of went away from Zarco, whereas Quattararo and Neil, he always looked like he was going to be in control of this one. 
He looked like up against Rins. Rins was having to be absolutely on the limit and a little bit more. I think this was one of those classic races where, you know, David could legitimately say that someone was giving it their 110% because he was overriding the bike. And when he crashed, there was that almost sense of inevitability it was going to happen. And I'm not going to blame Rins at all for that crash because he's trying to win the Grand Prix and he's overriding what the package was capable of. And I, I thought that, you know, he kept Fabio super honest all the way through this race. Yeah, but to be honest, Steve, that I ought to just cut in, Neil, that was my other kind of moment of the of the Grand Prix because uh, Rins has to be doing better. I know you admire him for like, you know, going for the win and, and sticking out like, you know, right on the limit. But, um, you know, from that position, you know, he needs to be doing better. I mean, we're talking about a rider who has not had more than five podiums in a season. Um, he had his best year, you know, last year when he finished third and he only had four podium appearances. You know, if he, he has he not learned anything from spending a whole year next to Juan Mir? Yeah, he's learned that Juan Mir is the number one and Rins is the number two rider. And if he can win races, that's a good job for him. He doesn't think that, Steve. He think I mean, he must. he mightn't think it, but over the course of a full season, I think that on the ba- on the back of what we saw from Mir last year, I think everyone expects Mir to to be able to get to grind out the results week in week out. That's nothing against Rins. I think Rins is a super talent that on any given day is the best rider out there, but. You know, how many of those given days do you get through the course of the season from him? Whereas from someone like Mir, he's never going to have those days on a Saturday, but on a Sunday, he grinds out results. This weekend, another example of it. Uh, I, yeah, I agree totally with with Adam there. Um, with Rins not learning this lesson, it was it was great to see him up there fighting, and it was it was slightly unexpected because his pace was so much better um, in the race than it was in FP4, for example. Um, but you look at Alex Rins, uh, 2019, crashed out of the Dutch Grand Prix, touched, crashed out of the lead, crashed out of second in the Saxon Ring, which um, basically um, hampered his chances of finish sec- finishing second in the championship that year. Last year, crashed out of the lead. Um, in the Austrian Grand Prix, crashed out of second, I think, when he was chasing down the leader at the French Grand Prix. Had he not crashed on both of those occasions and picked up, you know, second or first positions, he would have won the championship. Um, you know, you don't always have to win it, not especially in the first part of the season, and especially when Fabio's been looking so strong all all weekend long. Um, you know, there there has to be a point where you think, okay. Second place is a real good result here because Qatar wasn't a bad situation for me. Um, and um, yeah, you just, you saw those, the approaches of, of Rins and Joan Mir contrasted very nicely because Mir clearly just accepted that it wasn't going to be his day and, um, uh, you know, and essentially settled mid-race for what was going to be maybe fourth or fifth position. Eventually came back quite strong. Um, but uh, yeah, Rins just has those moments where, um yeah it's like uh it's not quite a rush of blood but you you can't really count on him for just being there all the time you know there are those those crashes when he's um fighting for top positions yeah but there's a big difference between the win bonus for or the bonus for a win <laughs> rather than the bonus for a podium steve you just look you're looking at the odds again and you're thinking always about it always <laughs> You're thinking about your bet for Jerez. And it's I'll be honest, a... I had money on Fabio for this one. I didn't have money on Rins. I was glad when Rins crashed out and my bet was was cashed out. But, you know, I think for me, though, it, it was one of those ones where you look at how disastrous Portimao was for Suzuki last year. You look at, you know, this race as well. I just, I, 
I can excuse this crash an awful lot easier than I can excuse a lot of other crashes that we've seen from Rins. You know, when we were talking on Paddock Notes on Sunday night, I was saying that, you know, Rins is a rider that lives for today, whereas Mir lives for the championship. He looks at the full season. That's the difference between those two riders. You know, Rins might well, you know, snap out of it and realize that, you know, the championship is the bigger thing. But we also saw plenty of other riders in the past that took that approach as well. Like Casey Stoner always looked to win races and the championship would take care of itself. And I think Rins has that mentality. You know, if he curbs that and he looks and says, oh, you know what, I can settle for a good result today. And then, you know, I can push for these wins later in the year. That's the ideal solution. But I also think that he's a man under an awful lot of pressure because we know that Mir, week in, week out, will manage to just find a way to grind out results. And for Rins as well, you know, he would have looked at it that Suzuki was his team after Vinales left, he's in charge of it. And then suddenly some young pup comes in that no one had heard of when Rins was making his debut for Suzuki. And suddenly he's the man that's winning the world championship. He's the man that's the focus of everyone's attention. And I think that that's, you know, a little bit of human nature coming out as well, probably for Rins. Maybe it's a case, I mean, they both live in Andorra. If if Rins goes around for a, a tea or something at Joan Mir's in multi-million euro pad that he's been able to build with his championship winning bonus, he might decide that a championship bonus is a little bit more beneficial than a race winning one. Um, but, you know, an- another point just talking about Suzuki is, um, you know, we in the, in the in a lot of our preview show material, we we're talking about how the Japanese uh, may be at a disadvantage of just having two bikes on the grid. Um, you would have to argue that the some of the incon- inconsistencies seen in the other brands, Suzuki are actually looking in a fantastic position because, yes, Rin's binned it, but he had potentially race-winning pace, and Joan Mir is starting to build that kind of consistency after his first podium of the year in Portugal. Um, but look at Ducati. I mean, you know, from, from Bagnaia's podium, you know, you swing all the way back to Zarco crashing out and, and Jorge Martin apparently being the new uh, second coming, and now he's in hospital again with two or three things needing to be fixed. Uh, you know, Honda as well. Uh, for all the joy of Mark coming back, you had a big crash with Takanakagami. Polo Spagaro had his confidence busted. Um, you know, Alex Marquez as well. You know, him, him and Zarko are now the, the most crashiest, is that a word, Ride, rider of the year with four spills. I'm glad I've made it up. <laughs> and, you know, like KTM, uh, Brad Binder saves the day for, for the Austrians once more. Um, but then Ika Likawana is something like... 50 seconds away from the race winner so the brands are, are all like having these wild swinging sort of set of fortunes for for their riders but suzuki it seems to be uh you know they're doing something right yeah but suzuki's got a really good package and you know the team has been structured really well for so long they got two very good riders two riders that you know like i said on any given day you're not surprised if either of them are battling it out for race wins whereas there's inconsistencies elsewhere and i you mentioned it earlier on that you know jack miller and that crash you know that highlighted it as well you know we came into the season all of us expecting Miller was going to be really strong. We thought Qatar was going to give him a really strong foundation for the season. Instead, he's found the pressure just building, building, building. Now we're going to go to Hareth and he needs a result in Hareth. He needs a result in Hareth, yeah. And it was interesting that um, he was adamant that um, that the arm pump wasn't giving him any issues in, um, in Portugal. He obviously had an operation, I think, the Tuesday after the uh, Doha GP. Um, to to correct arm pump in his right arm, um, and he said 
that um, the two tracks that always give him the, the kind of the worst, um, basically the worst kind of issues with Arm Pump was Qatar and Hareth. So, um, yeah, well, with that in mind, um, you would say that, um, you know, another weekend, another tough weekend could be ahead for Miller. Um, historically, it hasn't always been great in MotoGP at, uh, at Hareth. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one. I think we maybe talked about it after the Doha GP, but, you know, like, um, there's a whole variety of factors to consider. It, it, it's not just the fact that it's not been a great start to the season, but there is the fact that, um, you know, maybe he isn't one of Gigi Delino's favorite riders in the, the kind of the whole Ducati setup. Um, and also the fact that, you know, th there are other guys, Zarco and Bagnaia in particular, that um, you would maybe be looking at the championship and thinking that they are probably more likely to, to put together a decent season. So um, it's still very early days, you know, we're only three races in, um, but Senny's in the trenches. I mean, it's a, it's a tough, tough start. Um, and, you know, he's, he's come out of such tough situations before, to be fair. Um, but this is a, a huge test, a real, real big test now. Yeah, and I think that what you're saying there is, is dead on, Neil, because it is early days. We're reading an awful lot into only a handful of races where circumstances can work against you in different ways. And I think that's where it becomes so important, these next few races, is to establish a foothold. You know, Zarco did really well in Qatar, could have had a podium here as well. You know, that builds pressure. And now Miller needs to punch back answer back see what he can do because very quickly you start look to see what riders are available you know you look at yeah Zarco obviously doing a great job in the Pramac you look at Franco Morbidelli getting really annoyed at his situation at Patronus Yamaha you look at riders coming up through Moto2 maybe you're looking at just making a change Ducati aren't afraid of making a change um yeah no they're absolutely not yeah and you look at even Moto2 um Ralph Fernandez I mean winning his third Moto2 race. I think he's the first rider since uh, Vinales to win, um, you know, inside his first three Moto2 races. Um, you know, it's not regular that uh, a rider can adapt to the category as quickly as Raul has. Um, you know, will someone try and fast track him up to MotoGP next year? You know, it's within the realms of possibility. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. But then, you know, Miller, after Hareth, there's a couple of races where you know, you, you can see or you should foresee him getting a, a bit of momentum going. You know, he's always been fantastic at Le Mans. Um, Mugello, we know how well the Ducati's run there. Um, Barcelona is kind of the same. So, you know, there's there's a couple of tracks after the, the Spanish Grand Prix coming up where, um, you know, Jack can definitely get his, uh, his season back on track. Um, but, I mean, you have to say at this early stage with Cuadraro looking as strong as he does, um, and as Adam said, Miller, now just um, with 18 points after three races, I mean, the championship is a long, long shot. Even a challenge for the championship seems a long shot at this stage. But, you know, we say we're only three rounds into the season, but that's already 75, you know, points that have, have gone. And, uh, you know, Mark Marquez is 14th, uh, just over 50 points away from the championship leader. But I, I mean, I literally just looked it up now while we're talking and there's only two occasions since 2011 that the championship winner has more, has had more than 75 points, you know, advantage from the next closest rider. So it would indicate that, you know, the, as we well know, that you cannot afford to throw away a single point in this thing because it's going to come to a pretty tight finale. Yeah, 
20, 25 points for a race win and Quattro has already given himself that sort of margin. And you know, we always look at it that, yeah, it's very early in the season, but momentum comes early in the season. And you've got to make sure that in MotoGP, as it is right now, that you're able to strike when the iron's hot for you. Fabio has been able to do that. Some of the other riders haven't been able to do that. And now they need to make sure that they're able to just claw something back the next few rounds. And you know we've already said Fabio is so strong at Jerez that that's going to be a real challenge for an awful lot of people. Neil, obviously, Adam has uh, mentioned that one of his moments of the weekend was Alex Rins crashing out. We've talked about that. But what was what was your big moment of the weekend? Um, yeah, Steve, I think my moment of the weekend had to be just the opening three laps that we had um, because it was fast and frenetic, but we also had Mark Marquez right in the middle of it. Um, and, you know, part of me quite enjoyed the fact that the, you know, the new guys were showing no mercy. They really, uh, Mir in particular, put a real move on him on the first lap, which was almost like retribution for what went on in qualifying on Saturday, which was kind of, you know, quite quite juicy, quite spicy. Um, and then, you know, Mark just started, you know, he was pretty loose and he was saying himself after the race that he just was so out of practice riding in a big group of riders. Um, he was getting dragged into the corners and I think he nearly tagged me at the start of the second lap. Um I just thought that, um, I think it was, it was David, our, our erstwhile, or not our erstwhile, our, our good colleague, David Emmett, um, saying that um, he was puzzled as to why none of the other riders had, had really tried to rough Mark up during free practice. Um, but I think what we saw in the first couple of laps was exactly that. Everyone was basically trying to stamp their authority, um, just announcing to him, oi, this game's changed a little bit since you were last here. Um, and, you know, fair fair play to Mark because he caught his breath and eventually did a, a superb race. But I thought that first, um, you know, that first couple of laps was just stunning to watch because it was almost like all these new young kids that have been performing so well in the last season were really, you know, jumping at the chance uh, to try and put their mark on him. Yeah, and I think for, for me, one of the interesting things this weekend was mark as well during the qualifying session you mentioned it there neil i just thought it was great to see him try and latch on to the back of me or and clearly just trying to do a little bit of bullying you know like what you'd expect mark to do he likes to get underneath people's skin he's excellent at that tried to do it with Mir. Mir obviously bucked a little bit at that but i thought what was even better was whenever he tried to do it to rins then as well on the on the Q2 session, whenever he exits pit lane and there's just this standoff between the two of them to see who's going to gas it up once they exit pit lane. So I thought, like, for me, you know, those Mark moments were really interesting because one is Mark trying to reassert himself in there, get underneath people's skin, and the other one is everyone trying to say, hang on a second, mate, you've been off this bike for a year, a lot's changed. And it was interesting to watch the different reaction of the Suzuki riders. Rins, who has had this happen to him before, I think Bruno 2019, where he eventually, he eventually tried to, I think, run. He didn't, you know, he didn't want to run Mark into a wall, but he basically, <laughs> I don't know if you remember, they were both entering pit lane together after Mark was messing around with Rins. And, uh, you know, Rins basically tried to shut his line off and Mark was careering towards a wall before he eventually had to break. Bit of uh, chicken playing. But Rins in this instance was saying, oh, you know, this is just a, an aspect of the game that I have to learn, get a bit better at, and Mark's the master of this. Whereas Mir was coming out and saying, he should have been penalised. This isn't on. Um, I don't accept that. And um, I thought that was quite interesting. Um, you know, Mir obviously, I think, assumed the role of, of the world champion. Like, what, what are you doing to me? You know? Um, so that was that was good to see because, let's be honest, 
when Mark comes back and 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 starts fighting right at the front, um, you know, I think Mir mentally has what it takes to to take him on. Um, so this was, I think, the first of uh, what will be many run-ins that the pair have. The moment I I kind of liked as well was uh, Marquez crossing the finish line. I mean, you saw the bike wobble. He got unseated for a moment, and then there was almost a you know uh, you could see the body language and the sense of relief when he made the the finish and we're so accustomed to seeing him cross the finish line with some kind of celebration uh some kind of uh you know a gesture uh some kind of display of supreme confidence and to see a guy almost kind of limping home um you know was was that was the most kind of i think stark reminder of, of where he's been and where he currently is yeah we're used to seeing those moments as Mark wins a race and he does something to mark that occasion. But uh, this one kind of reminded me a little bit of when Rossi stopped doing all of his celebrations on the cooldown lap. This was a moment where, you know, Mark looked at it and realized, you know what? I'm just glad I'm back. I'm glad that I'm able to race this bike. I'm glad I'm able to be back there. And, and I think, you know, Rossi faced that moment as well at one point in his career whenever he then realized you know what, actually, all this antics, I actually just love racing this bike. Yeah, and I mean, we, we don't often see Mark emotional. Um, I personally can only recall one time when he when he has kind of broken down in public and, and started crying, and that was after the, um, yeah, back in 2015, was it, or the end of 14, sorry, when he, he said he was going to move to Andorra, and he gave a bit of an emotional speech to the Spanish press at the Super Presidio, actually, Um saying that uh, he felt some of the, the backlash that greeted that news was slightly unfair. Um, but yeah, um, and it wasn't just it wasn't just something that was for the cameras. I think he had a bit of a moment where he was very emotional in the garage afterwards. He had a moment uh, when he was chatting to Dazon, the Spanish um, uh, broadcaster. Um, and then I think he was having some moments, speaking to one or two members of uh, you know the, the Honda setup, I think he was having some moments in private as well. And, and when you, you heard that, you thought, okay, he's, he's put a real brave face on it and um, has always appeared like the, the mark of old when he's been speaking to us. But it really did remind you just the kind of dark periods that this guy's been going through. Like he must have, for him to get so emotional, you know, this was a massive, massive thing for him. And um yeah, it just reminded you that uh, he's probably been to hell over the last nine months and back. Steve, you mentioned his name a minute ago, and I'd like to sort of touch on, um, you know, the, the circumstances around Valentino Rossi as uh, our sort of winners and losers um, for, for this podcast. I uh, I think the situation with Valentino um, is not making for great reading, is it? Uh, a 12th a 16th uh, and a DNF. I mean, he's got four points, so he's on the same as his brother, <laughs> who's only done three races in, in MotoGP in not two decades. Um, it's, yeah, you try to think think of something kind of positive to look at it. Uh, like we said on the paddock notes on Sunday, he is coming up to uh, Jerez and one of the tracks where he took, um, you know, I think he won Jerez and then Catalonia in 2016. Uh, and then his last win was in Assen in 2017. Uh, so it feels like a long, long time ago. Um, Rossi is at the moment making up the numbers, I'm sorry to say. I mean, he doesn't look anywhere near podium pace. Um, and, you know, if, in terms of race wins, it's it's even more remote. So it's uh, it's a little bit worrying, actually. Um, 
you know, I do wonder even if a, a brand like Yamaha or somebody else um, would consider giving him a full factory bike if, you know, Ralph Hernandez comes on the market or, or some other kind of rider from Moto2. Uh, what do you do? I also agree with you, Adam. I think it's not just the results. I think there's a kind of, um, I mean, obviously no rider likes to go through these kind of periods where you're struggling to get in the top 10. Um, never mind if you're one of the, you know, the greatest riders ever. Um, but yeah, there's a kind of flatness to Rossi. There's a, a kind of impression you get when you're at his debriefs that he's just going through the motions. There's no real explanation offered up as to what is going wrong. There's no sort of detailed analysis as, as to what's going on. And you just wonder, he has said previously when he's gone through difficult spells afterwards that it's struggle. It's it's tough to find the motivation when you know that the the best chance you get is going to be tenth, you know, as opposed to first or second or maybe third. Um, and it reminds me a lot of 2019 when he had that really bad run of results. Um, you know, he, he crashed out at Mugello. He was obviously taken out in Barcelona. Crashed out at Assen. Took out Takanakagami. You know, just bad. You know, that was a really bad spell. Um, and yeah, it's 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 as bad as that period right now. Um, and you know, if, if it continues like this for the next couple of races, like you, you just have to say that this is it. I mean, what's what's the point? He's not enjoying it. Clearly, he's not enjoying it. And um, you know, the results are nowhere near good enough. Yeah, the problem for me is that when you look at Rossi, it's just so tight in MotoGP now that the margins are so small, and it basically means that when you're a little bit out, you're a lot out. And, you know, that's what makes it really tough for Rossi because he's looking at all the different things he can do to reinvent the wheel and they're not making enough of a difference because the rest of the field is just that little bit of an edge on him. And, you know, it's hard to see how it all kind of turns around for him. And I think that's what's going to make it probably a lot easier for him to make his decision whenever he com whenever it comes down to it. Probably, you know, in the next month, he's going to have to make a decision because the Petronas Yamaha is clearly a good package, a good team, all these things, and uh, they're going to want results. Franco's obviously looking like he's going to leave at the end of this season. He's talking more and more about being upset, all the things that are wrong with the situation. So suddenly Yamaha are looking at, you know what, maybe we need to just go and make this into the full junior team, look at two new riders to bring in. Yeah, it's a good point, Steve. I think, uh, you know, maybe Petronas needs to go back to that role of bringing in the younger riders to develop. Uh, maybe Morbidelli has moved up from being that kind of, you know, he's not a learner anymore. He's he's one of the top riders in the class. Um, you know, and Rossi, they're that kind of retirement farewell. Yamaha have given him the best equipment to to you know to bow out of MotoGP uh it, this could be the season to get it done but um on, on a happier note I think my winner from from the Grand Prix I'll have to say Aprilia um you know Alessio Spargaro is now six in the championship I think he said in his debrief that you know he has more points from the first three rounds than he managed you know all of last season um so you know Aprilia for all their limitations that we've spoken of before in terms of having the right riding personnel and the scope and obviously the the sad circumstances around Fausto Grassino which was nice to see his his memory honored in Imola for the Formula One at the weekend um you know Aprilia uh, have, have made a step up um and it's uh you know Alessio Spargaro is one of those kind of very uh forthright and and dedicated riders you can never fault him for that even if he doesn't bring the results uh, on his CV or, or to the table uh, so yeah um, props to, to the guys in black 
Neil, what about you? Who was your big winner of the weekend? Um, at the risk of repeating myself, I'm going to have to say Brad Pinter. I think I'd give Brad the nod at the, after the Doha GP, but that guy is doing some ridiculous things, um, going completely under the radar as well. Um, you, you, you sort of don't really consider him among, um, among the challengers. And then wham, bam, he's there on, uh, on race day. Um, yeah, it was it was a great performance from from Binder. Um, you know, he didn't have a good Portuguese Grand Prix last year, um, but you know, it was quite it was quite all weekend. Qualified fifteenth, yet was fifth six seconds off the winner. Um, and this is again when um, the, the the tire allocation had changed, and basically the the front tire that um, the KTM's liked and used in last year's race um, wasn't in this year's tire allocation. And I think on Friday, Miller, sorry, Miller, on Friday, Binder. Um, said the front tire felt like chewing gum it was so soft um, obviously those guys need a, a pretty rigid and, and a hard front tire it's a bit like the, the Honda situation um, so I mean what that what is that guy going to do when KTM finally have a front tire in the allocation that they find suitable to track conditions and track layout um, yeah Binder is is riding really really well at the moment um, he should he should win races this year no doubt um, and in this form um well, yeah, he's gonna be he's gonna be tough, man. He's uh yeah, he's just clawing out race he's just a race day animal is uh, is Bender. It's it's kind of the old model two uh warrior that we saw. Yeah, it is always fun when you watch the live timing and you see what Bender's doing, particularly in the second half of races. He just comes alive, he finds his way to the front of groups, he finds his way to find good pace. And I thought that, you know, similar enough, like obviously Fabio Quattraro, we talked about him an awful lot. He's the big winner from this weekend. But for me, the other the other guy I really want to take note of is Enea Bastianini because he was a lot like Binder and Pecco and Franco Morbidelli in the second half of that race. He got faster as the race wore on. And obviously his pace wasn't as fast as those other guys, but he was able to finish inside the top 10. The second half of the race, he was lapping the same kind of times as Maverick Vinales. And yeah, Vinales had all of his problems and this, that and the other. He's a factory Yamaha rider with tons of experience. And Bastianini was able to do something at a really difficult technical racetrack that matched the same times as Vinales and also we saw that he was you know half a second three quarters of a second a lap faster than his teammate Luca Marini in the second half of the race this was a weekend where Marini was very strong and Bestia did a great job in the second half of that race to set really fast lap times so I, I want to just take note of just how good of a job he did Adam obviously when we have big winners we have losers as well who are you who are you going to pin pin that one on right i mentioned rossi already steve so i'll hand it over to somebody all else. all right you're bailing out on that one already that's fair enough neil what about you um i think we have to go i would have to go with maverick finales just because it was a yeah lackluster in so many respects it's just a desperate start and obviously massive slice of um of bad luck um just to be millimeters wide um on the exit of turn four on his qualifying lap um, would have been on pole position if it wasn't for that and then we might have been talking about a different situation but it's, it was it was a desperate race day um, it was the return to the kind of old maverick after the race where he was complaining about the same old things and then he, he seemed to you know make the mistake of looking at social media after his um, after his bad race and um, you know there was a, a story floating around which is come, which comes from a 
completely unreliable source, uh, someone that has proved himself to be very untrustworthy in the past. Um, um, and I didn't tweet it, Neil. I didn't tweet it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, basically a story suggested that Maverick was going to quit MotoGP on the basis of what happened on Saturday. Now, as I said, this came from a, someone you would not trust at all. Um, so... Um, you know, Maverick then got into a bit of a Twitter spat and started responding and, and basically said, like, you know, it's nice that, you know, there's so many people out there that don't trust me and think that I would do something like this. And then he eventually deleted his Twitter account. So just a, a bad, you know, 48 hours for Maverick, really quite bad. And, you know, we, he looked, he looked, he did look like such a changed character in Qatar. Um, you know, the circumstances did seem to, be so much better from this year but after this weekend it's it's just a case of you know same old same old yeah and i think it's it's hard to argue with too much of that and that's where it's gonna be interesting to see how he bounces back over the next few rounds i think for me my my loser from the weekend you know we talked about jack miller earlier on a sense of expectation for what we thought miller was going to be able to do during the course of these early rounds now that all the pressure's on him i thought you know, we touched on Zarco as well. A mistake led to his crash. He was, you know, at the end of the day, he's trying to push for his first Grand Prix victory or first MotoGP victory, but he needs to get results now. He needs to get, he needs to get a win. He needs to get that monkey off his back, particularly whenever he came here as the championship leader and, you know, threw away good points during the course of this race. So I'm torn between either of those two for, for mine. Um, just to uh, bring today's pod to a close, obviously we talked a little bit about it there about uh, during the course of the race weekend, we were offering our Patreon supporters the Paddock Note special. So for $10 a month, you're able to get an update each day of the Grand Prix from the four of us, or sorry, the three of us and David as well. And it's basically to get you up to speed as quickly as possible. When the debriefs finish, we start recording and then we try and get that show out as quickly as we can just so that you're able to get just a, a quick update over the course of the race weekend and for a few of our paddock insiders just want to give a shout out to them so lou liana and ted some of our recent signups on patreon big thank you for the support you give the podcast it really does make a big difference to us we're also going to be able to produce a new show each grand prix weekend this we've got the panic pass follow-up and uh, that'll be coming out tomorrow where we'll recap the action from the moto 2 and moto 3 races and also we'll talk a little bit about some of the other talking points from the grand prix weekend so for myself steve english from adam wheeler from neil morris and a big thank you for listening to today's podcast this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Yeah, the problem for me is that MotoGP is just so tight at the minute that it's unlike... <laughs> Another guest on the pod. Millie clearly not impressed by uh, <laughs> the Rossi band.